Miracy. And so the way I actually rationalize it in my brain is I want to fail, but I want to fail big. So I want to take five big swings. I can fail four out of five. So it's only 20%. But that one hit needs to be a 10xer. And so that's the way I kind of rationalize it in my brain. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives grow their impact clarify their priorities, engage their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by offering ideas on how you can lead more intentionally. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence their position gives them comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders have cracked the code on not only delivering stellar value, to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, but also building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Ajay Varia. When Ajay and I met, he was the VP of Engineering at Masterclass, and what a unique engineering leader he was. He's since become CTO and then COO, at Emeritus, which is an online education platform that offers high-quality courses from top-rated universities online. And now he's founder and CEO of a new startup called Growth Nirvana. I've invited Ajay specifically to share with you how he has built some amazing and unusually high-performing engineering teams. And he's done this at four different companies, including two that quickly became unicorns. As you listen, Focus in on what he says about the importance in an engineering organization of building culture, ensuring trust, and helping the engineers develop empathy for the customer's challenges. Also, listen for how Ajay learned from some really tough love feedback, how to become vastly more influential with his executive peers. Welcome to the show, Ajay. I appreciate you joining me today. Thanks, Sharon. Great to be here. It is so nice to see you. It's been a while. (laughs) So let's just dive right in then, if you don't mind. And uh, I would love to talk about your leadership journey. And maybe let's just start kind of high level. How would you describe yourself as a leader? Well, that's interesting because, you know, I think of like two buckets as a leader. And the one I think that captured well is uh, servant leadership, right? The idea that like as a leader, I'm a servant to the employees and to the team. My job is to unblock them. Do they really understand why? And kind of more of a bottoms up org. But the thing I like to do, which might seem in conflict, but it's not, is I'm like hyper goal oriented, whether it's engineering background or my career is mostly at startups. So the the thinking is always evolutionary, not incremental. How do you 10x? How do you do something nobody's done before? Like these, you know, grandiose dreams. And then I found that this mix is so perfect because. If you have these super ambitious goals and then you actually empower these brilliant employees, you know, that opportunity, they're looking for a way to run with it. And, you know, over my career, what I always found is sometimes, you know, employees have worked at many different companies and on average, you know, they're told what to do. They don't really know why. And so sometimes it's a big transition for the actual employee. So even if you want to have that culture, 
there are things to do to try to get that organization or team to kind of that point. And how did you come to this realization that focusing on the culture was the way to drive these teams or grow these teams into that kind of innovative org? It's interesting. Like I'm kind of a system thinker. So I always work with like, what's the ultimate goal? And the goal is to win or the goal is to, you know, 10x the business or build our features faster than possible, better than the competitors. And so I would say maybe my personality is already maybe more on the empathy side, but it's really driven that this is the way to accomplish those goals more effectively. Because also I remember like when I was, you know, starting up my career and I was an intern uh, or then I was my entry-level job as a software engineer, I was told, okay, go put a box on this page and make it do search and make it be fast. And I had no idea why. I was never on a sales call or you know, customer success calls or all of these things. And then I think the way technology has changed, like in every organization, every sales call is recorded now. So there's no reason why, take it for example, the engineer can't really understand the problem the customer's facing. And then that leads them to then come up with, hey, the ideas you have as a leader, because you're spending 10 minutes on this problem, because you're busy with your million things. I spend 80 hours a week just thinking about this thing, like, why not give me the opportunity to present ideas and drive it and push you? And now this goes to the servant leadership, where now as a leader, how do I get that employee more information, more knowledge, more capabilities to make better decisions? And part of that is also self-development, where is that, let's take an engineer or a middle manager marketing, are they really good at their technical skill, but maybe they don't know how to communicate, or they don't know how to influence or they don't have some other skill which is limiting their ability to have impact. And then that kind of 360 view can hopefully drive better outcomes. So when you've had engineers grasp this and and really be able to be part of that team, what do you think some of the business benefits have been? Maybe it's story or two from from Masterclass or from Emeritus or whatever you can think of. I think the masterclass, the one thing I remember is when I joined masterclass, it was a very small team. I think it may have been 10, 12 of us. Every employee had to do customer support for one hour a week or maybe two hours. So not just me, but all the engineers were on the call, right? Engineers are sometimes super introverted. You don't want to be on the call. There's a 80-year-old person trying to purchase and, you know, super, you know, it's a startup. So it's not like what it is today, you know, how many years later where it's so streamlined and optimized. It's probably confusing. And now imagine that engineer's like, oh, I can solve this. Like, oh, no wonder they're confused. And I think that's the amazing thing where when people see firsthand they have the empathy of the user, the challenges they're facing, then they can drive ideas versus the old model is that problem has to be seen by somebody who then prioritizes it. Then it, you know, it kind of gets lost in translation each step, right? It's the customer support person to the customer support manager to the product management leader to the project manager to the engineer and so you can imagine the broken telephone that can get played sometimes versus if it's like a direct you know direct line that's great so can we take a little walk through your leadership roles and talk about maybe how your leadership has changed as you've grown from one role to the next to the next across organizations Yeah, when I think of that, I think there's like two big inflection points or maybe step changes. And usually that ties in with some adjusting feedback or you could call it tough love. So, you know, one is um, I was at an organization and then I was struggling to get my initiatives across the line, um, approved, 
like I'd give this idea and I was like, oh, it's so obvious. Nobody's agreeing with me. They don't understand. And the tough love was a board member who I had a lot of trust with. And so that trust is helpful because then you can really accept that feedback and you're maybe you don't have any fear of what that feedback is. And the feedback was your job is to get things done. And if you can't get it done, then we can get somebody else to get it done. And I was like, oh, wow, that, so that is really tough feedback to get. But he was saying it from a point of love because he trusted me. He thought I was doing great. But to be even better, what was I lacking, which was part of my job is how to influence other executives. And it's almost, I call it the transition from, I was a technical leader, like a, you know, I felt I was, I was a VP of engineering. I used to, you know, I'm very good at that. And now I'm trying to move to an executive which is you know, a broader skill set where the ability to influence, bring people along is more important. And now I'm not just convincing engineers who are just like me. I'm convincing VPs of marketing and VP of sales and VP of customer success and kind of a diverse set of people who might not think the same way as me, but I need to figure out what's the language to communicate to get things across the line. And I thought that was an interesting transition of what are the skills needed for that next step? And then, um, you know, how do you work on those skills? And that's always, you know, in my experience is always through great coaches and mentors and people to give me feedback. Because it's not like I got that initial feedback and okay, great problem solved. It was, uh, you know, I talked to my boss and talked about I'm going to try to develop these skills. And I might, you know, he, we used to joke that I'm calibrating. So sometimes I'm going too far, not going farther enough. And then getting that feedback on a weekly basis. And think about the impact on me, like what a gift he gave me to give me that consistent feedback week over week of, Hey, for my opinion, I think you did a great job in this meeting. I could see the people's you know, heads are nodding. People got it. Or, hey, you sounded like the smartest person. You probably thought you're the smartest person in the room, but you're not. <laughs> so, you know, it's, oh, okay, <laughs> got to work on that one. Uh, so, so it's wonderful to have people in your circle of trust who can do that for you. Kind of your own personal board of directors. What's an example of one skill that you worked on that helped you with the influencing of others? I mean, I think a couple of things stand out. One is um, uh, I'm a big fan of having cross-functional one-on-ones with other executives. Uh, and it can, you know, typically for an engineering leader, obviously the product leader is kind of like, you're in a relationship. So, you know, when things are bad, you know it, vice versa. But maybe there's a team that's a little bit further away, like the head of business development. How about the CFO? How about the um, general counsel? And are you talking to them on a regular basis? And usually it's always the first thing I'd ask is, how can I help you? What are you stuck with? And usually maybe I can't solve it directly, but people always like to vent and they're looking for somebody to empathize because we all face the same problems. Like, oh, I have this great employee, but they're thinking about leaving and I'm so stressed out. And, you know, there's so many things you can have in common, even if the, uh, you know, technical expertise is different. And sometimes there's cross-functional issues where we can align on it ahead of time versus when we're in crisis in that meeting. Um, and so I think trust has always been like the big thing I've found valuable because, and this is a pattern I've seen in a lot of organizations, like the sales leader, the marketing leader are always fighting because they found that across their 20 year career, there's always a time you miss your numbers and somebody gets blamed. And that shows that organization didn't have trust. Somebody's getting blamed. So when sales teams, hey, the marketing leads are bad, marketing team, I brought great leads, sales team didn't close. And you can make that same example with a lot of different executives when things go wrong. And so I found, how do you build an organization that has trust? Uh, and then how can you give examples of that? So if something goes wrong, instead of being the one to blame somebody, 
you know, I'm a big fan of five whys, engineering concept of, well, let's talk about why did it happen? What's the root causes? How to solve it? So you're already starting with, I'm not blaming you. Let's come together and figure out how to prevent it in the future. And that just feels more collaborative and you're on the same team versus sometimes the instinct is, you know, in some organizations, blame game. That's certainly true. So as you sort of grew from that, as you grew from the VP of engineering at Masterclass and then you went to Emeritus, it's a much larger company, if I remember right. Maybe describe to us the differences and then a little bit about your journey and how did you adapt to that CTO role? What changed? Yeah, so uh, yeah, Emeritus is a global company. So that's a big difference where at Masterclass, you know, all the employees were in California or majority. Uh, and it is growing crazy fast. It might have been 200 people when I joined, and then it was like 2,000 two years later. So it's one of those hyper-growth companies. And then all the challenges that come with growing so fast. And then there's teams of people in India, Mexico, Singapore, China, America. Uh, and so you can imagine the cultural challenges of how do you give feedback to somebody in India versus Mexico City versus you know, an engineer in America, a marketing team, it's actually very different culturally. And so how do you align an organization uh, culturally? That was a really interesting challenge I faced there. So can you give us an example, like the same piece of feedback you might offer to somebody? How would it differ across a couple of these different uh, cultural contexts? I think what I found is it always comes back to trust, where when there's a high amount of trust, then even if you don't do it the perfect way, it'll still work out fine. But when there's a lack of trust, it's harder. So if it's, imagine, um, you know, you take over a team, it's based in another country. I don't know who they are because, you know, you just get the role. They know who I am because they see your name in the email. And so the first step is before you can even get feedback is, is there even any trust? So can you go visit them? Is there ways to have an offsite? And, you know, the thing that made it really tricky is just, this was during COVID. So then you can't just go fly there and spend a month and get to know people. It's a little bit more difficult. So then you're trying to creatively do things on Zoom. How do you have icebreakers? How do you get to know each other? It's not perfect, but how do you, you know, build trust? It's almost interesting where like there's a trust equation and it's like around like credibility and reliability and authenticity and what's the perception of self-interest. And so sometimes I try to like break that down. It's like, well, how do you get those across? across these geos or regions? And how can that then help with when it's time to actually give that feedback? And so one thing I used to do in this case is I still want to give that same feedback because I want that adjusting feedback to make change. But then how do you, you know, instead of a drive-by one minute or an email, I would then schedule a meeting. And so that is more time, right? And that's say, quote unquote, more expensive. But I think the value is, I think the other, the person hopefully saw hey, Edgy's trying to build trust. He's trying to build a relationship. It's not a transactional thing. And then over time that can build, you know, over the months to come. What is the big cultural difference that you learned about, about say giving feedback in India versus giving feedback in, I don't know, Mexico or Central America or South America? So I'd say my observation is in America and maybe in engineering cultures in America, it's quite direct or much more direct in terms of feedback. And I think uh, India, culturally, a lot of it is you give feedback or you say something and the answer might be yes, but it's, but not like, do you understand it? Do you disagree? Less likely to disagree. So, so 
then how do you change? Because you do want that conflict. Like if I told an employee to do something and they can't do it, or if I say, you know, I want them to say, hey, I can't do it and this is why, and then we can brainstorm together to come up with a better solution or debug it back to the servant leadership, right? I'm trying to help unblock. And so having that little bit of awareness can then help, you know, set things up because the worst thing you do is, hey, I need this by Friday. Okay. Then Friday comes and nothing happens. <laughs> You're like, oh no, I just told, you know, the, then the whole thing falls apart. And there's actually, uh, I don't know the name of the book, but there's some great books that describe different cultural norms across different cultures where that can maybe give a baseline perspective. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, these are huge countries, very diverse populations, but then yeah. you can then kind of see, you know, what are the ways to adjust and adapt to try to help those teams perform better. So how did your leadership evolve when you took on the CTO role? Yeah. So um, I think when I, uh, you know, sometimes I think of like the roles sometimes are like, what stage of company is it? Is it a zero to one where then it's hiring? Or is it a transformational role where the team is excelling and you're trying to make them go better? Or is it a total turnover? Like the team is doing poorly and you need to make a lot of change. And so I think in the case of that CTO role, CTO role, I was the first technical hire in-house. So it was a zero to one. So I was hiring, you know, the team. So in some ways that's so empowering because if there's a culture you want to bring, you get to define it, right? So you get to define the interview structure. And so one thing I've done over my career is I don't think of HR as their job is to get me people. We're partners and it's I'm accountable to make sure the people are great. So like I always do my own reference checks. I'm always actively involved in defining the interview process because there's these cultural norms I want. And it's so much easier if you can bring people in that match those cultural values. So for example, if growth mindset and intellectual curiosity is so important, then let's put that in the interview process to really differentiate between people who are good at it and exceptional. And then you can have such a superior team that way. Mm, That's great. So that's pretty active engagement for someone at the CTO level, I would say. Yeah. And so I go back to like the the systems thinking or the breakdown, which is like, oh, wow, that's a lot of time you're spending. But then, I mean, you build a great team, you can basically go on autopilot. And so an example at Emeritus is I built such a great team that then I could, you know, work on other things and be involved in marketing and sales. And I moved from a CTO to COO role there. But also, you know, if I think of times in my career that I've struggled, you know, what's the joke? Every problem is a people problem. It's like, oh, the team's not aligned. Oh, they're fighting each other. And it's never so simple as like things are gray area where, well, this person is so important for us to hit this quarter's goals, but they're not the great long-term solution. Like they're not growing fast enough or somebody's in a manager role and they're technically strong, but they're not a great leader. And so the power of being so actively engaged to build that strong team and then help them continue to develop and grow faster. I mean, it pays dividends to such a level. So I'd love to just take a slight sideways question for a minute. The title of this podcast is To Lead as Human. And I'm wondering, what does that mean to you as a leader, to be leading as a human? You know, it's interesting that like the team you lead, they're not robots. If they're robots, then you just code it and they go do it. You're managing humans. One way to get feedback is I could just write it up in an email and send it. Now, likely that person is going to be like devastated, frustrated. Wait, you have no idea. I spent, you know, 200 hours working on this, all these details you don't know about. And so the human aspect is understanding where they're coming from, where did we not communicate things well? 
Are they the right person for the role? Things are so much more complicated. Um, and so I think that's, I think, one takeaway I had, which is it's such, um, you know, the simple way to think about it is, oh, I have all these people. If they could all go in the same direction and take, you know, the biggest steps every day forward, so much will get accomplished. But they're human beings, so they're naturally going in different directions. They have things going on in the personal life and the work life. They have career ambitions. And all of these things kind of make that matrix of possibilities not as simple as programming robots. <laughs> and as a leader, what are some parts of your own humanity that you've had to come face to face with challenges in yourself that you had to adapt to become more aware of others' reactions, more sensitive to others' reactions? Yeah, it's kind of like taking a look back at, you know, what are your weaknesses or what are your strengths that can be weaknesses in other spots? So I'm very impatient. So maybe that's a strength. You get things done faster. Well, now when you're leading a team and you're like, how do we get this thing done in a day? Or how do we move faster? Like that might not be the right, you know, mode. And what does impatience lead to? It leads to frustration, anger, <laughs> and so on. So I think, you know, early in my career, I used to get very frustrated inside. Ah, why can't we get this thing done? It's so straightforward. I can just do this myself, right? And if you have an organization, the goal is, how do you get this organization to produce the most possible? You can see how servant leadership is a flip because now I'm not in control. The team is in control or that individual is in control. They have the goal, they're empowered. And how do I, and so that's where the impatience can sometimes go at conflict because I have to be patient that maybe this employee is developing and growing in that area. And in the long term, it's going to be amazing because they're going to totally crush it. But, um, you know, not everything goes perfectly every step of the way. So I think that's something I've always <laughs> maybe I continue to trick, grapple with. <laughs> you know, you bring something to mind for me, Ajay, which is that in startups, there's always this dilemma about, do we hire someone who's already done it a bunch of times or do we hire for potential and how much can we afford to develop people? And I'm just curious, how have you made sense of that, particularly as Let's see, how large did Emeritus get before you moved on? Uh, I think it was 2,000 people. And I might have had, a, I don't know how big the org was, in the 800s. It was very large. Yeah. And so how, did, how do you navigate that balance between we can invest to grow somebody versus this person just isn't growing fast enough? How do you sort that one out? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's like very contextual. So I can give a couple examples. So you know, in the zero to one stage at a startup, I'm always a fan of getting the highest potential people, even if they don't know anything, because over the long term, that being 10x better will always, because the idea also is we're trying to do something evolutionary. And so I'm a big fan of that. Now, there's the argument of if it's a larger organization and it's a different pace and different type of thinking, then I can't take somebody, you know, two years out of school and, you know, make them run a sales organization. You need somebody who has a certain set of attributes, like they've led organizations before, they, um, you know, certain set of skills. But I am generally a fan of taking people of high potential and putting in those opportunities. So maybe it's not a head of sales you hire, but maybe somebody who was a director of sales somewhere and now they get to be a senior director. And because it goes back to that interview framework where say I'm optimizing on growth mindset and grit and things like that. So maybe they're not going from zero to one, but they're at 0.9 and, you know, 0.9 to one. But then you get that value of them being, say, maybe more motivated and grittier and, mm. and um, maybe more open to different ways of doing things. Well, that sounds, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
Anything else you can think of in terms of like personal shortcomings that you had to overcome? Yeah, I mean, I think there's another one where, and I think you and I might have talked about this, where a lot of this comes from your background. So it's kind of like, you know, Indian descent. So then it's like very conscientious, you know, score perfect grades. And now you're in the real world and you're, you know, in exec staff meetings or leadership meetings and you don't want to make a mistake. And then there's another executive just shooting their guns in the air, saying whatever's on the top of their mind. That was a big adjustment for me because I was like, wait, that person's, you know, talking for 50 minutes out of the hour. I'm getting like my two minutes. I'm barely getting anything done. Do I need to take more risk? And that's very unnatural when you're a perfectionist by default. Mm. And you take that characteristic. And then also you're an engineer where like one of the metrics for engineering is like, you know, low, low bugs, right? So. One of, wait, one of the metrics is what? One of the metrics for engineering is low bugs, right? So it's quality and quantity. So, yeah. so it's kind of like reinforces that perfectionism. And it's almost like a transition to taking bets. And so the way I actually rationalize it in my brain is uh, I want to fail, but I want to fail big. So I want to take five big swings. I can fail four out of five. So it's only 20%. That's horrible compared to hundreds that you get in college or whatever. But that one hit needs to be a 10xer. Mm. And so that's the way I kind of rationalize it in my brain. I think some people might not even need that rationalization because it's just, it's either logical or it's more natural. But that's something that I think early in my career, I probably more struggled with and didn't take as much risk as maybe other people might have in the same situation or opportunities. Hmm. So uh, one of the mechanisms that I know you used with your teams is something that if I'm, I might remember it wrong, but I think you called it a personal operating manual. And I remember you telling me first you used this when you were at masterclass. And I would love for you to share with our listeners, what is that? Why did you want to do it? And how did it help? How did it help the team? How did it help the business? And how did it help you as a leader? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we called it the culture doc. And how did it get created is early days of a company, things are wild west. You're doing some hiring, some worked, some didn't. You had some employees that didn't work out. And then it's like going forward, how should we operate as a team? And some things can be as simple as how should you act in meetings? Like we expect you're not late to meetings. We expect you're, you know, um, we had one concept, like if there's a meeting and you don't have an action item in it and you didn't talk, like don't show up to those. Like we don't want status meetings. You're a leader. We expect you to have one-on-ones. There's no status. It's actually just personal development. And so these are things that, you know, I believed in, but then you know, if you're building a team very fast, how do they know? They can't read my mind. So actually writing these things down, and there's a Google Doc, so people could edit it, people could give feedback. I think at one point a year in, you know, we noticed, hey, we're actually doing a lot of volunteer work at Masterclass. Like every quarter, all the engineers would go and volunteer at a school in the mission in San Francisco. So we're like, hey, that should be part of the culture doc. Like we value volunteer work and collaborating and doing that. And so that was unique to that organization. And what I found is I would take that through my jobs and adapt it. And it slowly grew from this one page doc to five pages to 10 pages. And it's almost like as we picked up different concepts or techniques, we would add it. And it was a great way where some employees, some of these things were like, oh yeah, this makes sense, but I've, I've never seen it written down. And some were concepts they never thought about. And so what we used to do is actually show it to people as part of the interview process. So you can opt out or opt in. And then people who opted in, they're like, oh, wow, this is like amazing. Like, I wish I was at an organization like this. And some people who are like, yeah, I don't really value this that much. 
then it is good for them to be like, okay, we're no different than any place else in their mind. And maybe a different organization is better for them. Mm. So what are some of the kinds of things you put in the document that would help your team know how to interact with you? Yeah, like one thing I remember, um, there's this thing, are you familiar with the Eisenhower box? This is something that is like, how do you decide what to do? So if it's like urgent and not important, do things that are important, right? And that concept of, well, you have 50 things to work on. I do, no, 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 work on the things that matter. Uh, and so it actually helped people understand like, how does the organization think? Because we were very goal-oriented, very focused. But this goes back to the alignment thing where like now the alignment is higher. So if you have a team of 20 people and they're all you know 2% off from each other, then you're not really moving forward that quickly. Versus if there's a culture, uh, culture doc where now people can be more closely aligned and now there's a mechanism to give feedback. Oh, you know, our culture doc says... This is how we run meetings. Or every time there's an action item, somebody should be a directly responsible individual. And let's, you know, can you try to do that next time? So we were better in meetings and better taking action items. Then it kind of gets all these, say, these vectors all pointing in the same direction. And that kind of alignment, you know, hopefully, uh, I think I thought led to better results. That's great. And how did it help the the uh, organization, like, how did you know if it was helping the organization? Are there metrics that you could track or how did you know? I mean, I think at that company, we used to do like the 360 reviews, right? Like upward manager surveys. And I think like the engineering management was always rated very high. So that's like a qualitative metric where like it's resounding with the team and that had value. So I think that's like maybe one of the takeaways. I think the other one is sometimes it is qualitative. Like at least I felt like the organization was going in the same direction, you know, like the, there was less, you know, sometimes so much time is the guns are facing inwards. Like there's internal conflict over how to do things. And then once you take that away, then all your time is just focused on how to solve the problem. And I think that was interesting. And did your peers in these organizations ever like try to replicate that? Or did your peers learn from it? Like, how did you I guess, how did you share that learning with your peers? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the document is shared across the company and different execs could look at it and kind of do their own spin on it or take their own values. So I think, uh, I think that way, that was a great way to, you know, sometimes one great way to kind of evangelize or share with an organization is you almost have a case study of this is how I'm doing hiring or this is how I'm doing this culture doc concept. And then, you know, a customer support org can do their flavor of it, right? And pick and choose out of it. And they even have a template, right? They can take the doc, copy it, take what they like, take what they don't like, you know, and put it together that way. <laughs> That's great. What kinds of feedback did you get from your team members or peers about your leadership? What did they like about it? And what did they find challenging? Yeah, I think the biggest feedback, because we, you know, I used to get my upward feedback pretty often. The feedback I think that stood out the most is people always felt that I was very generous. And if you're a servant leader, it makes sense, right? Because it's in such contrast to if you're not a servant leader and I'm like, hey, you need to get this done at this time. And if not, I'm going to be upset <laughs> or something, <laughs> right? Like the kind of old school management. And I think the other thing I like to see is of the people who work for me, are they getting promoted fast? Whether it's in my org or sometimes they go off to be a VP somewhere else, but then they work for me as a software engineer or a middle, you know, middle manager in marketing, mm -hmm. and they can grow so fast in their career. And I think that's something 
maybe I took away is like that was one of the you know big accomplishments or takeaways that uh, people could grow so fast in this model. Thank you. So this is maybe the hardest question that I might ask you, but like, what has been the biggest challenge you've faced as a leader? And uh, how did you resolve it? And what did you learn about yourself from that? I guess there's two. One is like failure is the biggest one where say there's a revenue goal for the year and you miss it and you tried as hard as you can, the team's land and you just you didn't do it. And I think those are the ones that are the toughest, because, especially because it's not like, say it's an engineering problem, which is like, oh, there's a bug and you do the five whys and how to do better. If you miss a sales target, it's not like, oh, we should have just increased pipeline. There's something bigger, more complicated. And I think those are the ones that have always been the toughest where um, it's a gray area problem. There's no right or wrong answer to why it happened. Mm -hmm. And but then the purpose of trying to debug it is then how do you do better next quarter? Mm -hmm. And so what did you have to come face to face with and how did you make the right improvements? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question because I think if I think back at one year where we had like a, because not everything has been a straight lineup, right? You have the bumps or the flat parts. I think when we hit the rocky times, I mean, I think one thing is just to, you accept what's happened and then you kind of focus on what can you do about it? Because I think there's two, two kind of gotchas, which is sometimes it's, especially when you're a starter, you're working so hard, it's actually so emotionally draining when you actually miss mm -hmm. and you think you did everything you can. And it, it kind of like really pains you because you're like, you're so invested in the success of the company and then trying to then zoom out and, you know, dream of that new future that you'll succeed and what are the changes. And sometimes the changes can be pretty dramatic, right? It's not an incremental uh, difference. It's, it's a bigger one. And so I think accepting that reality and moving forward, that can be very hard, not just for me, but then also my job is to get the organization aligned or to accept that, mm -hmm. right? And say, so what's the hardest one? Say people have to move on from the organization or change. Mm -hmm especially when you're a startup and you're a family and you're so close together, that can be really tough, right? It could be that the team was great up to that certain point, but now for the next stage, it's a different set of people. Yeah. I know that's very, very hard for leaders in early stage companies. And it's very hard for employees, I think as well, to understand. So how do you communicate to somebody if that's the situation? What, what might you say? What have you said? when the organization needs a different kind of person to go forward? I think I like to be kind of the same values, right? Like if you have trust, you can be open and honest and direct. And in the moment, people will be upset about it. Oh, I think that's a stupid decision, blah, blah, blah. But I think you got to take the hit as the leader because as a leader, it's actually my fault because I'm the one who hired everyone, put the team together, approved the plan. So actually, ultimately, it is my responsibility and my fault. But I think in the long term, people do value that at least they were told straight what happened. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of organizations, the default is to hide the truth or not explain it or, but part of it to actually be so direct is then how do you get better? Right? Yeah. And the only way to get better is just to be totally honest of, hey, strategically, we thought this initiative was going to work and it failed. And this is the reasons why we think it failed. And actually just share that publicly to the entire organization. I think sharing failures is something that I've always appreciated. And the thing is, 
I found that I only got to see that when I became an executive because most organizations don't share it across the company. And whenever I've been a leader, I've tried to be, whenever we fail, I want it all public for everyone to know. So now you have a new startup that you're building. And I, I guess going from a big 2000 person organization back down to just a handful, or maybe just one or two right now, um, yeah. what principles are you putting in to practice already so that it will help shape the way you're growing the new company? So step one, got the culture doc. Because <laughs> that's like go-to playbook. But what's great is then that can help inform that first step, which is the success of my company, Growth Nirvana, is going to be on the team we built. So, you know, it starts with my co-founder, Jesse, and then the initial engineers on the team. And, you know, we do that same, you know, whatever level of effort I would do on hiring, it's like 10x more, right? Because each person's impact is so dramatic. And a lot of the principles, you know, I really valued a lot. We're trying to do, even though we're still a small company. So everybody has a personal development plan, one-on-ones each week, even though we're a small company, because the principle is we want people to get feedback to grow fast. And uh, we actually do upward management surveys, get feedback, because even if it's a small company, if I do something wrong, I want people to tell me. And sometimes people are comfortable face-to-face, sometimes a little bit easier if it's an anonymous uh, survey. So trying to bring some of those practices and, you know, we don't want to implement so many processes that it's overwhelming, but I always find that this kind of trust and feedback are the big ones. So I'm always a fan of retrospections Mm. regularly, the five whys when, you know, there's always a bug or, oh, that sales deal didn't close. Let's let's do a five whys and understand why. You know, you talked earlier, Ajay, about how when people have a sense of the purpose of the organization and they can align their own purpose to it, that they're going to feel more invested and committed. Is there anything else that comes to your mind that might kind of help drive these more human organizations as you're trying to build your own? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that stands out is sometimes the trap is, you know, are you hiring people way better than yourself? And sometimes people say, oh, my team's better than me. But I mean, like, no, like, are they actually like, I was a software engineer for like 20 years. So like, is this person better than me? And the answer is, yeah, for sure. Um, and maybe that can, you know, building an org like that will lead to better results, but also pushing yourself to how do you evaluate that these, like the people you're hiring are actually better? Because it's one thing like, oh, they worked at this great company or whatever, but do they actually have that skills, the mindset, the culture to actually, you know, drive the impact you want? Because mm-hmm. then it's almost like I'm in awe of the team. I have, right? Because they accomplish so much so quickly and, uh, you know, they're driving um, such impact. So it's another way to think about it. Yeah. Um, Sometimes we have listeners who might feel a little skeptical about putting so much attention on the sort of people side, culture side. And I'm wondering if there are some hard metrics you could share that, that have helped you understand that, yeah, that actually makes a big difference to the business. The things that stand out to me is like, I worked at Masterclass and Emeritus. These are two, like, you know, I guess they're called unicorn companies, right? They went from zero to revenue to, you know, multi-billion valuation in a very short time. And I think that in itself is like so unusual. And so the two organizations that accomplished this, that, you know, both those companies had a focus on the people side, right? Uh, Masterclass, an example, they did company-wide employee engagement. Um, they invested, you know, uh, they gave a, like it was an HR org, it was a people organization. So they're investing not just in 
the mechanics of HR, but they're also involved in development and management training and emeritus, the same thing. And um, so maybe my observation is these two companies and many companies like that, the investment produces these outsized returns. Mm. And so my experience has always been that how do you get companies to do exceptional results? And I think investment in people has always been something that I've seen has made a huge impact. That's great. So my favorite wrap-up question is, what's the most important piece of advice you want to share with other business leaders who want to build workplaces where they are that are more fully human? And so are there one or two things that you would recommend people try to get that effect? No, it's a great question because I'm a fan of um, take a baby step. So what's an initial thing you could bring into the organization that makes a difference? So maybe today we talked about multiple things. Maybe two things stand out, which is high quality one-on-ones, right? Because, uh, and you know, anybody listening can just Google like one-on-one best practices where it's not a status meeting, you're talking about their goals, you know, do you know the name of their significant other and their kids? Like some of these kind of more humanistic approaches that improve productivity And that could be a baby step, which is you as a leader, do you do that first with your report? Because the one thing I know is most executives I know, once, you know, you're just so busy, everything is just like, you're just trying to survive. And it's easy for one-on-ones to go out the window. Mm -hmm. And then if as a leader, you and then your reports aren't doing it, you better believe it's not high quality one-on-ones going through the organization, they're out the window. So that could be something where, okay, it's very tangible, it's measurable, and then you can, you know, measure the impact, right? You can have surveys on it. You can see if, you know, people's performance are improving. Like if as an organization, you produce this output by just introducing one thing, which is one-on-ones or one-on-ones with feedback, does that now increase the impact of the org? And then the hope is, because I've seen this in a few orgs where they take that one baby step, it produces results. And then maybe the next step might not be another baby step. Maybe you can take two because you have more excitement within the organization And it's amazing. These things compound. So like the results can be exponential really fast. That's great, Ajay. Thank you so much. So Ajay, where can listeners find out more about you and your new company and your ongoing advice on leadership? Sure. So you can go to growthnirvana.com, which is the startup I'm working on. It's a no-code marketing analytics startup. And you can go on LinkedIn and follow me there. I'm always posting about management and leadership on a monthly basis. That's great. Well, thanks again so much for coming on to the show. It is a pleasure to get to see you and and to hear about your journey. Sharon, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Please keep listening. I'll share some takeaways from this conversation, as well as a next step you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways. To remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. In summary, Ajay's core leadership principles can be boiled down to these few. Be a servant leader and unblock the progress of your team. 
always explain the why, strive for 10x improvements, not incremental ones, ensure everybody gets regular, honest feedback, and build relationships with people. Don't settle for being transactional in your relationships with them. Ajay also shared a few ways that he puts these principles into action, and you might want to try them. First, he prioritizes transparency as part of building trust, especially with engineering groups where engineers, as we know, can tend to be a little cynical or skeptical of what others call soft skills, but leaders know to actually be the harder ones. He always hires for attitude first and skills second, even in the early days of zero to one growth, because growth mindset and a willingness to be part of a team approach is what characterizes those highest performing employees that he's looking for. And he's actively involved in the hiring from the get-go. And last, don't cancel your one-on-ones. Instead, prioritize them and make sure they're high value for both parties. If you're ready for an even bigger stretch, here's something you can try. Create your own culture document. Jay has agreed to share his with our listeners, so look for the link below in the show notes. How do you get started? First, identify your own leadership principles and articulate what you expect of your team members in terms of how they should engage with each other and how they should engage with you as their leader. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer and post-production is provided by Post Office Sound. Make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And hey, if you like the show, please leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. It really does help spread the word about how to build a more human-centered leadership approach. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. 
Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.